This is The Guardian. Today, as the Ukrainian capital is encircled, a family story of getting out and those they left behind. Before we start, a heads up. This episode contains strong language and descriptions of war. Elias, when you went to bed on, on Wednesday evening, what were you expecting y- your Thursday would look like? What was the plan? Every uh, Tuesday and every Thursday at 7 a.m., we go to the swimming pool with kids. Uh, we've got two kids, two boys, four years and nine months old. Until just a few days ago, Ilyas Ferdiev lived in Kiev with his wife, Natalia, and their family. So, yeah, I woke up as usual and I had an alarm at 5 a.m., when I woke up, I didn't first realize was it the like bombing, the distant bombing somewhere, like a big boom, or was it an alarm? So it happened like simultaneously, you know. And so when you heard that boom at 5 a.m. in the morning, what crossed your mind? I mean, what did you initially think might be happening? Can, can I use F words here? or? Oh, you're most welcome to. Uh, so, fuck, no, that can't happen, you know. Uh, bloody hell, I thought, uh, oh, really, did it? Did it actually happen? Did it actually start it? He learned Kyiv's international airport was in flames as Russia's military started an all-out assault on Ukraine, including its capital. Uh, and I went to Natalia to wake her up. Uh, she was sleeping with, with, with this little one. We didn't know what to do, but we wanted to do something. I mean, if it were me, Ilyas, and I was hearing bombing and I was seeing footage of the airport being bombed, and then thinking of you know, two young children sleeping in the house. That's a lot, man. How did it feel? Uh, Scared, obviously scared, absolutely scared and lost, lost in my actions, as well as Natalia. I knew that the safest place in the apartment is the bathroom. So the first thing came to me, we need to hide. But on the other side of my brain, you know, uh, I had to make decisions. I had to start acting to, to, to keep my family safe. And the decision whether to stay or go, actually. Yeah, this, is, this was the big decision throughout the day. As you were sitting there in the bathroom, and I'm sure you could hear the sirens in the background, what were you telling the children? What were they asking you and, and what were you telling them? Personally, I think that telling kids, like, there's just, like, fireworks, don't worry, it's going to be all right. I think this is the wrong way to, to explain what's going on. Uh, Natalia told him directly that Russia is invading Ukraine, you know, so that they, they are fighting us, that they, they came to take our home, and we have to stay safe, and uh, you have to listen to us, to listen to the parents, because parents know what to do. And what did he say? How does a four-year-old make sense of something that most of the world still finds incomprehensible? Well, he, you know, we, um, what's the word? We breed him up in, in a very patriotic way. We tell him that we are Ukrainians, we speak Ukrainian language, we, that this is our land, that this is where you're born. And uh, the way he knows about Ukrainian flag. He tells me every time, Look, Daddy, there's Ukrainian flag on, on the top of a building, stuff like that. So he understands, you know, he's, he, he's brought up in, in this Ukrainian environment and he knows that this is his soil, uh, this is his land. And as a boy, as a little boy, he said, I want to protect them. I will fight them. Let's go. Let's fight them. 
<clears throat> and and it just uh, no, it's just r- running through like it, it makes me cry actually. Yeah. <clears throat> when Russia invaded, thousands of Ukrainians had just a few hours to make impossible decisions. From the Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in focus, the terrible choices facing Ukrainians and how Putin's war might not be going to plan. And so, at what point on Thursday, as you were hunkered down in the bathroom, did you decide that it wasn't safe to stay in Kiev anymore, that you had to risk taking this highway west? Uh, well, we had like two camps in one bathroom. You know? uh, my camp, I was thinking of staying in Kiev and I was really uh, sure about it and I was convinced of Natalia. But Natalia was against this idea. So uh, we were talking a lot in the bathroom. I think we stayed there for a couple of hours. So the decision came to us around evening time, about mm-hmm. around 9 p.m. So until until that time, even when we we're standing like quarter to nine, and I was telling Natalia, let's stay in Kiev, she said, no, we have to go. She said, and this is her direct speech, if Russians come here, I will not be able to live under the Russian uh, flag, never. So whatever happens to us, let's go. So we said, okay, let's go. That escaping with all the risk that that entailed was better than staying and potentially having to live under a Russian occupation? Yes. The short answer is yes. Natalia asked me, do you realize, Elias, that we might not come back? I said, yeah. So we left everything behind. Emma Graham Harrison, you're a Guardian foreign correspondent, and you were in Kiev when Ilyas was there last Thursday, and you stayed as the assault started to intensify. What was that like? It was pretty alarming. I mean, the whole process was of of the beginning of the invasion was so sudden. And and even though I think so few people, whether they were Ukrainians or people who study Russia, really expected Putin to do an invasion on the scale that he has launched. Um, Even though looking back, of course, all the signs were there. I think everyone thought they were bluff. And so when it hit, I think there was a certain sense of unreality. How could you be in Kiev? and have Russian missiles landing in this city. It it was sort of almost unimaginable, I think. And then, you know, it swiftly became very alarming because people had sort of imagined perhaps some kind of limited assault in areas of the East that were claimed but not held by these sort of Russian-backed separatist movements. And to suddenly have really the whole country under attack, a very intense attack, was disorientating and terrifying. And what, what have Putin's forces actually done to the capital over the last few days? What, in what ways have they sought to assault it? Well, they've not been, I think, as successful as they would have liked. But what you know, we have seen has been attacks by missiles. So I went on Friday morning to an apartment block where some sort of missile had landed just a couple of metres away from the actual apartment block. So instead of slamming into the bottom of the apartment block, which from the damage I imagine would potentially have brought quite a lot of it down, it had gone into the earth about a metre away and it had left this crater sort of two metres deep, probably three or four metres across. And above it, just this scene of complete devastation. I mean, the, the front was sort of ripped off the apartments over that blast crater. 
their buildings, you know, 20, 30, 40 meters away, had their glass had been shattered, doors pulled down. You could sort of see into all these apartments. Quite amazingly, I mean, one thing that has really impressed me has been the sort of calm, stoic way in which so many Ukrainians have faced the unimaginable. And there were people back in their apartments sweeping up the glass. So we've seen several other attacks like that. There was an apartment block, um, a high-rise apartment block, where something went in quite high up and sort of ripped, tore a chunk out of several floors. Right now, the the main sort of Russian presence in the heart of the city seems to be saboteurs, or at least the worry of saboteurs. So the whole city has actually been locked down now from Saturday evening to Monday morning. It's an absolute curfew. Even journalists, we've been warned, you know, if you go out, you will be shot. The only people on the streets should be the military and anyone who's not will be assumed to be a saboteur. That's the, the you know, that's what the government's saying. That's a, a pretty stark warning for journalists and everybody else. What do they mean by, by saboteurs? What are they so concerned about? I suppose by saboteurs, they mean people who are preparing the, preparing the way or aiming to prepare the way for a Russian advance, either by sort of marking targets, perhaps by taking out targets. There's been rumours right from the beginning of this that what the Russian military wanted to do was go in, seize key ministries, key individuals and, and sort of, you know, decapitate the government, not literally decapitating people, but, you know, take out the top leadership and, and replace it with a puppet government of their own, which in theory, that would pave the way for a relatively bloodless transfer of power. But what you're seeing instead is this incredible, incredible sense of defiance. You know, someone I've known for a long time, a former civil servant, messaged me on Friday morning to say he was off to sign up and get a gun and, you know, he might not be able to be in touch. And I messaged him that evening just to see how he was doing. And he said, oh, well, I waited all day. And by the time I got near the front of the line, the, the, the people handing out the guns told me to go away. In fact, they begged me to go away and they said, please have mercy on us. We haven't even been able to eat lunch. We've been so busy handing out guns. So many people want to fight wow. with no military experience. People in their 60s, people who've had desk jobs all their lives and people who can't fight are making Molotov cocktails and getting ready to throw them in these sort of amazing kind of production lines. Emma, that defiance shown by Ukrainians, you know, appears to be emanating from the very top. We've seen President Vladimir Zelensky stay in Kyiv, constantly putting out videos. What's he been saying? So he's been saying, basically, I'm here. I mean, that's been his sort of main message. I'm here and I'm fighting. There was This wasn't on a video, but there was a report of an extraordinary conversation that he had with the Americans who apparently a couple of days offered to evacuate him. I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. The fight is here. And you know, Zelensky was a pretty divisive figure before the war. He, a lot of people didn't respect him, didn't support him. Some people even thought he was perhaps too pro-Russian. And he has managed his leadership of this war in an incredible way. And he seems to, you know, he seems to have united the Ukrainians behind him, showing incredible personal courage, staying in Kiev, going out on the street, filming these videos. Saying, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere. Glory to Ukraine. You hear that everywhere. That's sort of the, become the sort of the slogan of the war. You know, glory to Ukraine. That's how he signs up all his messages. And telling people, I'm here, I'm fighting, and I'm staying here. Emma, we're a few days into this war now, and the picture is still chaotic. There's still a fog over a lot of what's going on. But are we starting to get a clearer idea of what Putin's strategy has been for this invasion? Well, a lot of military strategists, and you know, I should say this isn't my, my strong point, but they say that Putin's strategy and what's actually happened on the ground 
sort of a, a far apart that it doesn't really seem to work, that the strategy seemed to be to sort of have a lightning advance, capture big cities. Maybe Putin even believed some of his own rhetoric that they were a liberating army, that they would be welcomed. And that just hasn't happened at all. I mean, they have... The Russian military claimed to have taken some cities, but they so far have not taken any major cities. Um, but they haven't, you know, their advance has been much, much slower than they, you know, presumably intended it to do. And because Ukrainian resistance has been so fierce, they are now at a point where if they're going to try and push on ahead, we're probably going to see some very brutal and intense urban warfare. And, you know, that is a very worrying prospect because we have seen the Russian military in other conflicts, you know, for instance, in Syria, being prepared to use extremely brutal tactics in civilian areas and directly targeting civilians as well. And so there's a concern that this war, which has already claimed hundreds of lives, has already disrupted hundreds of thousands of lives and, you know, traumatized millions. There's a generation of children well, and adults who will at some level carry the trauma of, of the last week with them forever, that it could get a whole lot worse. And why do you think the Russian army has failed to achieve what may have been their original strategy? Why has that lightning advance, that attempt to quickly take Kiev, decapitate the government and install a new one in its place, not worked at least so far? You know, I mean, that is such an interesting question. And I think there's probably two aspects to it. One is a lot of military people are saying that the, the Russian sort of military doesn't seem to have been in as good shape as perhaps some people expected. Their logistic chains have been very weak. As I mentioned, we've seen their sort of vehicles running out of fuel, soldiers, there's been videos of soldiers kind of looting shops and misbehaving on the Belarusian border, getting drunk and stealing chickens. But also, I mean, it does seem that perhaps Putin believed some of his own propaganda and really thought that there would be less resistance And so that's the situation in and around Kiev. But can you take us around the rest of the country? What are we seeing in the east, for example, and and, and down south as we speak? So there's been very intense fighting in the east for the city of Kharkiv, which is one of the sort of main cities that, as I understand it, they, they were sort of hoping to capture that and use it as a kind of staging post to move to Kiev. And this morning, things looked very intense. There was very heavy fighting going on. Russian troops were sort of reportedly in in the city. But the latest we're hearing is that they've been repelled there too. Once again, you know, the Ukrainian military, um, you know, backed up by sort of volunteers, territorial armies, civilians have managed to to hold out. Possibly the place where there's been the 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 biggest advances, and they are, you know, you could say somewhat limited, are, are, are in the south where troops have sort of come up from Crimea and taken some territory there. Um, But I mean, what I would say is I think we've seen from the strength of the Ukrainian resistance that even if there is some sort of military victory, even if Putin does succeed in either capturing, killing, replacing Zelensky, which is clearly what he would like to do, and, and setting up some kind of puppet government, I think it's fair to say that should we reach that point, that there will certainly be an insurgency. And I imagine based on how, you know, the courage and effectiveness with which Ukrainians have fought, you would expect it to be quite a tenacious, well-resourced insurgency. Ilias, as you were plotting this journey west, I mean, what kinds of things were you taking into account? How are you trying to plan this journey so that it would be as safe as possible under the circumstances? Yeah, first, yeah, first things were like, let's get the full tank and go to the west. 
another dilemma we had is which route to take because there are a few routes to this main, uh, to this main highway and one of the routes uh, was leading uh, through Hostomel Irpin and this is where the fights and, and, and the shootings were so we took the risky way because it was quicker so like we we put the gas on and just went on and where were you heading? Where was the goal that you thought would be a safe place, at least temporarily? Well, first, we were heading to the west, to the Poland, Ukrainian-Polish border. We had all the passports and documents, obviously, so we just wanted to leave Ukraine uh, for some time. We understood that the customs and the border, uh, the border customs should be packed, absolutely packed with people like that. And once we went to the highway we heard like we were in constant touch with our friends and we found out that uh, Ukrainian borderers they don't let men go out from from Ukraine so because the mobilization of the army was in force and uh, the other option was uh, to let Natalian kids go but she said I'm not going to leave I'm not gonna leave without my husband so we had to stick together so we started off thinking that Jitomir might be the place we can stop by and we are safe now and this is where we're staying right now and we are like we're gonna stay here for some time Elias I'm, I'm really glad to hear that that you guys now feel safe where you are but the way the way this is all going you know it, it looks like men your age might be called on to actually take up arms. And you said earlier that, you know, your son said he wants to fight for Ukraine, but he's a kid, you know, he doesn't know what that means. How do you feel about the prospect of having to actually take a gun and, and fight the invading Russian forces? I'm not a warrior, to be honest, yeah. Me, myself, I'm a product manager in IT company. I understand that it might come up to me that I might take the gun and actually go and do something more serious. I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm good with a gun. I've never, I've never actually uh, shot or, or did the shots. But whatever happens, it happens. And if I, I, will be, I will be forced to do that and to protect, of course I will. Emma, the future is clearly full of unknowns. But one thing that's clear about the present is that this is quickly becoming a refugee crisis. The UN says more than 360,000 people have already fled their homes. What options do people have if they're trying to get away from this fighting? I mean, it depends where people are. I think for people in, for people in eastern Ukraine right now, I'm not sure there are many options for fleeing because most of the bridges across the Dnieper, which, you know, sort of runs through the country, have either been closed or in some cases blown up. So I think it's very hard for them to sort of get out. And, you know, further to the east is is Russia. So unless people are sort of going to perhaps join family in Russia, I, I don't think there's a sort of way out towards the west. For people in the west, depending where they are, um, it's still possible to get to the borders of, of, of you know, several European countries that, that border Ukraine. And, you know, we're seeing tens of thousands of people a day are making that, that journey. It's for people in Kiev, it's it's very difficult to get out at the moment. Um, I mean, we left on Friday from the city proper to the suburbs. And even then, there were sort of huge crowds on the roads, traffic moving incredibly slowly, you know, people sort of with their life possessions, their pets crammed into their cars, sort of, you know, queuing 
for hours to to just to get out of the city. And now the intensity of the fighting, the fact that that um, Russian troops are sort of closing in on several main approaches to the city, mean that it's almost impossible to get out for those in the west half of the city. Those in the east half of the city have been told not even to attempt to cross the, the bridges. So they're stuck in Kiev for now. I mean, that's that's really terrifying. But for those who have managed to get out, what have neighbouring countries said about how welcoming they'll be to Ukrainian refugees? So, I mean, we've seen um, the neighbouring countries largely open their doors. You know, it, it, it's great to see their generosity. In some cases, slightly alarmingly or disturbingly racist rhetoric about how, or, or perhaps not from politicians themselves, but within the political sphere about how these are different refugees from Syrians or Iraqis or others fleeing, you know, ironically, other wars in which Russia was very much involved. Our own government has been particularly ungenerous when they were asked about it the other day. Um, on Twitter, one of the ministers said that Ukrainians were welcome to apply for visas to do seasonal work, fruit and veg picking. Or if they have British relatives, the visa requirements would be waived. But obviously, you know, I I was talking to a very accomplished journalist here and he said, all right, so, you know, I've got this far in my career and if I have to leave, I meant to go and pick fruit and vegetables. Is that what the UK thinks of me? And I, I think that sort of pretty much sums up how people feel about that particular offer. Emma, so far, so much of the coverage of this war has been, you know, about bombings, about missile strikes. And just because of the nature of it, we haven't been able to really get a sense of that human contact. But I'm wondering, on the ground, is the picture of that human cost starting to become clear? Is it coming into focus what this violence is actually costing the Ukrainian people? Absolutely. I mean, we're starting to see the first pictures of of people who've lost their lives, either fighting or, or civilians. Um There was a report today from UNICEF about schools being shelled. Obviously, children aren't going to school when when Kiev's sort of under curfew and people are spending the night in bomb shelters. Uh, A hospital was hit by cluster munitions a couple of days ago. Uh, We've been told that that there's at least three children dead. You know, we're only five days into the war. And as I said, there's fears that the fighting is going to get a whole lot more intense. And Emma, when this war broke out suddenly on Thursday, I I know I was probably like many people, constantly refreshing the news, feeling like I wanted to know every little thing that was happening. But as the kind of hours turn into days, is there a sense that what we're involved in here is something that isn't going to be quick? I mean, it's going to be whatever form it takes, a long-term conflict, something that simmers away for, for weeks and possibly longer. Certainly, it looks like it's going to be weeks, perhaps months. I mean, I think Putin hoped and expected it was going to be a quick conflict. And, you know, Ukraine's response has been that that is not going to happen. You know, there's general mobilisation. Men between 18 and 60 are not allowed to leave the country. And we are seeing at the border, you know, guards are not letting um, men of those ages leave. Women and children are free to cross. And, you know, that's certainly, that alone suggests the government, you know, that this is a, a fight for survival, for existence. And, you know, the message we're hearing from Ukrainians, from so many of them, is we are behind the government 100% in that battle and we are throwing everything, our lives, if it comes to that, into this fight. Coming up, Ilias on the family he's left behind in areas that are under Russian attack. Ilias, you and your family are now safely away from Kiev, but you must have people back there. I mean, who have you left in the capital and, and what's their situation? 
I've got my mother and my grandmother in Kiev. They live in the central parts as well. Uh, my granny, she's 85 years old, so she's rather old. <laughs> she, uh, she, her hearing is not well, and she tells me that nothing is happening there. Uh, and I'm actually on one side, I'm happy that she might not understand what's going on. And, you know, she went through World War II and um, she, she, she's a kid of a war. So she told me lots of stories about Nazis going to their villages, invading their villages. And fucking hell, it comes now again. So she's an invaded once as a child and then once as a much older woman. Yes, yes, everybody in family has, has, has their grannies and grandparents with that experience, you know. So it's my granny and my mom, and my mom, she's, um, she's got some problems on psychiatric side, so she's epileptical. And I'm, I'm calling them every hour or two just to calm them down. I tell them what to do. I tell them, I'm, I, I'm you know, I'm uh, calm that they have lots of food because, you know, old people, they, in, in Ukraine, they take everything home and they're always packed with extra uh, with extra food all, all the time. So they've got always, they've got something to eat because they still remember those hunger from, from World War II when they didn't have food. So they, they feel like they always have to have something to eat. So I'm happy that my granny, you know, it was like mentally she was preparing for that. So they've got plenty of food. They're staying safe. Uh, Natalia, she has, her mom is staying in, uh, and her brother are staying in, in Kiev, around Kiev. They're not actually in Kiev, but in Kiev region. Um, they're staying in like in private block, in private houses. Uh, they're hiding. Ilias, can I ask you, You've both left family behind, you know, including your parents, because Natalia felt that living under Russian occupation was intolerable. What is it about that prospect that she found so unbearable that she had to leave? Uh, let me ask Natalia, if she wants to live in this country. Okay. So she says that uh, if if that happens, the prospect of that uh, that the Russian flags can be raised somewhere around here, uh, we will be we will be looking for, for for the for the way to leave to leave Ukraine and but not staying under these flags. You know, we understood that we are leaving Kiev, our play, our home place for now, uh, for unpredictable time. So. Mm -hmm. Maybe we will not come. We will never come back. What What are the next steps? We, you know, we we, we are taking these thoughts away. Uh, we keep the track of uh, of the fights, and we we are we're hoping. Obviously, we're hoping, and we're trying to support our military forces. And we see the consolidation of the whole world, of the whole bloody world, takes some actions. Yeah, at some point, those actions are not enough. But I, I constantly receive messages and uh, calls from different countries. My friends and my international friends, they tell me that we are support. They go out to the streets. They, they go to the strikes. I know that. People may write petitions to, to, to different huge companies worldwide, like Apple and Google. 
and that makes us hope. <clears throat> Sorry. That makes us hope that they will never take this country. We believe, we believe that this is, this is Putin's last fourth post. This is the country he will, Ukraine will bro break his teeth and will break him down. So I'll, I'll carry on and I will do anything just to not to, to live under their flag. No, we don't want it. It's tough. Ilias, thank you so much for talking to us, both you and Natalia, you know, under circumstances that I think most people would just find, you know, I mean, impossible to deal with. And it's incredible that you're both dealing with it. And we really, really appreciate you both making time for us. Thank you. Thank you. You take care too. Thanks for your job. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Ilias Verdiev and his wife, Natalia. Thanks so much to them. And to Emma Graham Harrison, a Guardian foreign correspondent currently in Ukraine. You can read Emma's work and all our coverage of the war at theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Alex Atak. Sound designed by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Mythley Rao and Phil Maynard. Back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.